full. Sorry, take all that out of the way. Your my full, full title. My full title. Well, my name is Andrew Adam, and that's my lovely weak, weak wife. <laughs> my lovely strong wife, Jackie. Uh, we come from Taunton, Somerset. Somebody has to live there. You can't all live in Devon. And uh, we've been there for 35 years. Um, we are Pentecostal um, by theology, but like you, we all love the same Lord, and we all love the same gospel. Uh, what else do you want to know? Uh, in secular life, I was, um, I was a doctor. I was a pathologist. I was a very important person. People were dying to meet me. And I did that for about 30 years. I ended up as a consultant at Musgrove Park Hospital in, um, in, in Taunton. But God has been good, and he's now giving us good years with the living and not with the dead. How about that? So you had no complaining uh, patients then? No, no, they never got me up at night. Uh, they didn't have private patient bills to pay, and I never got a letter of complaint. So that was okay. So you spent some time in the military as well? Yes, I did 16 years in the Royal Air Force as a medical officer, joined as quite a young man, and uh, that's where I got my training as a pathologist. So we did quite a lot of aviation. We did air crashes and all kinds of nasty stuff, but that's, uh, that's a different life. I wasn't a Christian then. Uh, we came to faith in our early 40s, praise God. He caught us just in time. Excellent. Family? Uh, yes, we've got three lovely kids all grown up, uh, going on with the Lord. We've got a daughter in Amsterdam with husband two boys. They pastor a large international church there. We've got another lovely daughter and three grandchildren in the Cotswolds. They're close. And we have our son living close to us, and he's got a little girl, Millie, our youngest granddaughter. So they range from seven up to 21. Just pray for you now. Thank you. Dear Lord, we just pray for uh, Andy as he opens up your word to us. Uh, we thank you for him. We thank you for the gifting that you've given him. And we give you the glory for that. And we just pray, Lord, that you will open our hearts and minds to what you have to say to us through him this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kevin. And what I might have added, but uh, I'll tell you now, is I have a, every time I come down here, I have a sense of coming home because I didn't add that my father was a GP in Torquay. And I went to school over the hill at Montpellier. Anyone heard the name Montpellier Prep in, uh, in, in Preston? Um, but as I say, we moved away. Someone has to live in Taunton, and that's us. I remember when I was a boy, um, Great Western Railway, I think, had an advertising slogan to get people down to the English Riviera. It was something like, uh, you know, come to Devon, a bit of heaven. And they use it nowadays, don't they? And heaven is on my heart. And heaven, friends, is what I'm going to preach to you today. I wonder what heaven, the word, conjures up to each of you. If each of you had a little balloon coming out of your heads at the top, uh, you know, as in a cartoon, what would they look like? Do you know, one thing I'm pretty sure they'd all be very different because we all have different concepts. I want to tell you, Briefly, a story about uh, a lady called Barbara, who was big in our lives a few years ago. She was a church member in Taunton. And Barbara suffered from a congenital condition called hydrocephaly. She was a Humpty Dumpty. Her head was not this big, but about this big. And with it, she had a small and withered little body, and she, hadn't, she never walked properly. She was wheelchair-bound. But she was a star. She was one of God's 
little ones. And I remember sitting on this particular day in her parents' bungalow, and Barbara, who was quite bright, um, said to me, Andy, she said, I've written an essay. She was doing a simple course in literacy at the local tech. Uh, She said, I've written an essay about heaven. Would you like to hear it? I said, Barbara, I'd love to hear it. And so I can remember her now opening up, and uh, it was quite an effort doing all these things, and she started to say something like this. Heaven is a lovely place. The first thing you notice is that all the paths are absolutely flat, and there are no stairs, so you can take your wheelchair wherever you want. And then it went on, and when you go for your meals in the canteen, she had this funny idea that everyone had met in a canteen. She said, the ramp is exactly at a level with the servers. And you look them, the eye in the eye. No one ever looks down on you. You know, I was absolutely broken. I just had to stop. I said, Barbara, I must tell you about heaven. And as I told her about heaven that there were no wheelchairs and no one looked down on you and that she would have a new, a new body. You know, the smile that broke on her face. I went home really feeling very bad indeed because, you see, in that church, we had lost touch with heaven. We no longer taught it. We no longer, I think, perhaps believed in it. It was no longer on our lips. And people like Barbara were going through life with a completely distorted idea of heaven. You know, Paul the Apostle warns us there'll be a time when godless men will come and they will undermine the teaching. He tells us there's a time when people will only want to hear what their itching ears require. They won't take sound doctrine. And you know, that's perfectly true. If you try and start a conversation about heaven nowadays, often with a Christian, you'll get a hodgepodge of alternative options. You'll get reincarnation. Do you know that two-thirds of the world's population believe in reincarnation? That millions of people believe in universalism, a doctrine that says, yeah, you'll get to heaven because everyone gets to heaven because God is sovereign and in the end he won't have Satan having a victory. That millions of people believe that there isn't a heaven, there's just total annihilation. There's neither heaven nor hell. And if they do believe in heaven, and this goes for a lot of Christians, it's, it's a hodgepodge of oriental mysticism. It, 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 it takes in all kinds of alternative theories. It's tinged with popular culture and Hollywood, jokes about St. Peter and the pearly gates. It's rubbish. Friends, we've got to get back to Scripture. And I'm going to read you a little bit now from Matthew uh, 22, just to get the flavor. You remember, it's a situation in which the Sadducees come to Jesus with a trick question about heaven. Reading from verse 23, that same day the Sadducees, who say who say there's no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, and then they go into this, extraordinarily elaborate and ridiculous question. Moses told us that if a man dies without children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. And it goes on, they pose the question, if this happens seven times over, effectively, which one is her husband in heaven? And Jesus rebukes them. Verse 29. 
Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. They didn't believe the resurrection, so they didn't believe the power of God. They didn't know their scriptures, so they didn't have an idea about what heaven was truly like. And that's the first point I want to make to you. This beautiful book is our only source. And this is what we've got to get back to. We've got to read it to understand not just doctrines of heaven and of hell. And you'll be glad I'm not preaching about hell this morning because we'd be here till four o'clock. But everything resides in this book. But I have to admit, friends, there's a difficulty with heaven because Scripture only gives us glimpses. And they're mostly in the book of Revelation and from Jesus' teaching. And they're, they're not easy. And we ask ourselves, are, are they real or are they symbolic? There's a difficulty. But I think that's almost intended because, you see, the good news of Jesus Christ is all about Jesus Christ. It's about the love of God. It's about what Jesus did for us. It's about the need for salvation. And salvation leads to heaven. But why talk about heaven indefinitely if, you, if you're not telling people how to get there? The root is more important here than the end. The journey is that what counts in the words of Scripture. So what should we do with these glimpses? Well, I believe we should read them, should study them. We should try and understand them and give thanks for them. Treasure them in our hearts. What we should not do is embroider and embellish and speculate and make silly jokes. And we all do it from time to time. You know, at the end of Revelation, there's, uh, there's a very serious warning. And uh, I always read it to myself when I preach on heaven. The Lord Jesus says to, Peter, to, to, to the Apostle John, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. There are a lot of plagues in Revelation. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life in this book. It's serious. We shouldn't mess with heaven. If we don't know it, we should leave room for what has been called reverent agnosticism. Just say, well, I don't understand. I don't know, but I'll believe. So I've got three points for you this morning. Firstly, is heaven a real physical place? Or is it a state of ecstasy? Another dimension? Alice through the walking glass. You know, we open, we go in, we come back again. What is it? Is it real? Secondly, what's it like living there? And thirdly, what's it for? So just hold those points in your mind as we go through. I believe that heaven is a place as real as this building. Anyone with me? Hallelujah. How can we be sure? Because the Bible tells us so. How does the Bible start? Genesis 1.1. Heavens and earth. He made the heavens and the earth. The whole Bible starts on that premise. And then time after time in the Old Testament, God says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Incidentally, that's a statement that is reaffirmed by Jesus in Matthew 5 when he's talking about swearing. He says, don't take an oath by the heavens. That's God's throne, nor by the earth, because it's his 
footstool. Jesus time and again tells us that heaven is a real place. Our Father, who art in heaven, he says. And think of John 14. I'm going there. I'm going to that place. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I've been there, I'll come back and get you so you can be with me. If it were not so, I would have told you so. Is anything more real than that? And then there's Paul's teaching. Paul's teaching on resurrection bodies. Friends, what do you want a body for if you're not going to function in a place? I'll get back to bodies in a moment. But there's, there's all this evidence. Now, in a way, God is everywhere with us, isn't he? It, it says in Psalm 139, if I go up into the heavens, you are there. If I descend to the lowest deeps, which is actually, he's talking about Sheol, the place of death, you are there also. The spirit of God is universal. We cannot escape from him. But I believe that God is where, heaven is where God particularly dwells and where praise and worship are perfected. We see that, don't we, in book 7 of Revelation. Wonderful picture of the throne room of God. Listen, I thought your singing was pretty good this morning and I love to be part of it. But I have to tell you, it's just a shadow. It's not even a glimpse of what praise and worship are going to be like in the presence of the Father and the Son. It's where they become made perfect. But where is heaven? Well, the rabbis taught three things, and I think it's very helpful. You just quoted to me correctly, Genesis 1.1, God made the heavens. And the Jews taught three heavens. One was basically uh, the sky around us, where the birds fly. That's the first heaven. The second heaven is around the planets. It's, it, 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 it's out there in the great firmament. The third heaven, to which Paul says he was actually, if you remember, at one time elevated and called, is beyond the planets. That's where God dwells. That is his abode. And I believe it in as implicitly as that my, I go back to a solid house where I live. It's our home. It's where we're going. What's it like living there? Question number two. Well, when I discuss this with folks, sometimes I think what they're actually saying is, will I like it? Sounds an extraordinary question, doesn't it? But I've heard people saying, it's going to be boring. Imagine 10,000 verses of, are you calling Lord Kumbaya before breakfast? Then you have a cup of nectar and start on another 10,000. You see, I'm joking about it already, and I shouldn't. But people really feel that. I overheard teenagers, youngsters, talking not so long ago about heaven and was the one. And one of them said, I, I wouldn't want to be there. He said, anyway, he said, all my friends will be in hell. I said, it'd be a great place. Party, party, party all the time. And I thought, you idiot. But you ignorant idiot. Because we're talking about something terribly serious and to think of it in those light terms is just so mad whatever I tell you about heaven this morning and I'm going to try and tell you just a little bit doesn't even come close you remember Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 no eye has seen no ear has heard 
No mind has conceived what God has prepared in advance for those that love him. So I can't possibly do justice to this topic. Equally, if I were to talk about hell, I can't begin to tell you how horrible and terrible it is. And don't forget, we have two alternatives before us. As we dwell on the first, let's just be heartfully heartful and grateful that there's a place for us and that we don't face the second. Some heavenly facts. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's the aim, that's the aspiration of every believer, to be eternally in the presence of the Father and Son. Psalm 16 says, In you there is fullness of joy. In you there are eternal pleasures at your right hand. I want to elaborate that. You see, in the presence of God, our relationship with him, which has been so broken, so imperfect, is totally restored. We are totally at one with the Holy Spirit, the Son and the Father. Can you imagine what that is like? We, we had a, I was going to say a young man, but he isn't a middle-aged man to supper in the middle of the week, friend of our son's, not a believer. But in that quiet time that you get sometimes after dinner as we started talking about our faith, he admitted, he said, I just, I feel so incomplete. There's, there's something, but I don't know what it is, which gave us a wonderful opportunity to start to talk to him. But that, that hole, that God-shaped hole, that Augustine and others talk about, that can only be filled by the presence of God. Augustine said, God made us for himself, and our hearts are lonely until they find their rest in him. That's what we're talking about, a totally restored relationship with God. And I think that in that circumstance, probably, probably the circumstances, the context, are a bit unimportant. Let me ask you a question. If you got a lovely stiff card printed in gold inviting you to the tea with the Queen, would you be upset if it was Buckingham Palace and not Balmoral or Windsor or Sandringham? Would you be upset if it was three o'clock in the morning or three o'clock? No, of course you wouldn't. You think, tea with Her Majesty. Fantastic. You wouldn't be concerned about the surroundings. There's that lovely line from one of the songs, isn't it? The things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And the things that matter to us now, sometimes a great deal, too much, won't matter a little bit in heaven. They grow dim. And why do they grow dim? Well, one of the lovely emphases in, in Revelation, I think, on heaven is light. There is no darkness or night in heaven. Let me just remind you from uh, Revelation 21. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. 
The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. In heaven, friends, there's no darkness. There's no gloom. You do not cast a personal shadow. Why? Because there is no sun. The word of God says it. No sun. No day. No night. There's no pain or sorrow or death. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Friends, that means that every hurt, every wound, every injustice, every scar you have borne, every broken relationship, every divorce, every lost child, Every miserable thing that's happened to you and to me will be erased. We will not remember it. It's been well and beautifully said, I I think, that the only evidence of earthly suffering in heaven is the scars our Saviour bears. Revelation also says nothing impure will ever enter heaven. And that, that's wonderful because that also means the hurts and the scars and the wounds and the unfair treatment that you and I have given to others. That's all gone too. And then we have new, perfect resurrection bodies. And let me just remind you what Paul has to say about that. New, wonderful bodies. We will not all sleep But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must close itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. Now, it's a mystery. Paul elsewhere tells us that there are physical bodies, and there are spiritual bodies, and they're not the same. And I don't know quite what our resurrection bodies are going to be like. Think of Jesus. Jesus could pass through a wall and suddenly appear. He could transport himself in his spiritual body suddenly from Jerusalem to Galilee. And yet he could sit down and eat a fish breakfast. I don't know what our spiritual... I just know they're going to be wonderful. Philippians 3 says, Jesus will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. What was Jesus' body like? He was young, he was untouched by age or illness or infirmity. And that's what our bodies are going to be like. Kevin, you're not going to have to worry, mate, about your eyesight or hearing. Neither am I. You're not even wearing hearing aids. I've got them on both sides. No walking sticks, no prostheses. We're all going to have a full dental set of 32, vision 20 on 20. How old are we going to be? I don't know. Some people speculate we might be about the age of Jesus himself, probably about 33 in your prime. Think of it. A world without dementia, a world without cancer, a world without congenital disease, a world in which my lovely little friend Barbara 
is restored again as a young, lovely lady looking as Jesus wanted her to be. It's amazing, isn't it? Who's going to be there? Well, a vast number. I love Revelation 7. After this I looked and I saw a great multitude that no man could number from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb wearing white robes and holding palms in their hands. And here's the great bit. They're not going to be strangers. They're not just a crowd. They're a family. Um, In Ephesians 3, Paul says, For this reason I bow before the throne of God the Father, from whom his family in heaven and on earth take their name. We're a family on earth and in heaven. Some people say, will I recognize people? Probably the commonest serious question about heaven is, will will I know my loved ones? My husband, who died just five years ago, and I'm still broken, will I see him again? The child that was born but lived two days. And the answer, I believe, from Scripture, you can only argue from Scripture, is yes. Because if you remember, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples saw... Moses and Elijah, who had been dead for hundreds of years. And Jesus didn't say, may I introduce you, gentlemen? They knew him. Facial recognition. So I think it's a fair assumption that we will recognize our dear ones. I think there'll be some some surprises. Because some of them won't have been so dear in life. There may be a bit of, fancy meeting you here. Or, what are you doing here? But it won't be done in that way. It'll just be joy. But there may be surprises. We've already looked at Matthew 23, the business of physical relationships. Yes, you will see your dear ones. You will see your previously deceased husband or wife. But there won't be a a physical relationship. Jesus makes that quite clear. In heaven, he says, there is neither marriage nor giving in marriage. We shall all be, you shall all be, like the angels. We all know the angels aren't neither male nor female. Certainly they don't have romantic attachments. Why? Because it's God who's the center of our focus and affection and our attention. And we won't need, we won't miss them. But it'd just be lovely to see people again. I believe heaven is a place of familiar features. It's not alien. It's not Mars. And we shall feel at home. In Revelation, John is taken to a great high mountain. He sees the river of life. He also sees springs of water. He sees other trees. I believe there will be vineyards. Otherwise, how will there be wine at the wedding feast of the Lamb? And incidentally, I do believe there will be food and drink. Bible talks repeatedly about a wedding supper of the Lamb, Jesus says to his disciples, I shall not drink wine again until I drink it with you in heaven. Isn't that fairly clear? I don't think it's a great big booze party, but I think there's going to be enormous enjoyment around food and drink. People say, will there be music? Will there be animals? Yes. Revelation is full of music. Trumpets, shawns, harps, lyres, animals... Not so sure 
we'll certainly have the Lamb of God and we'll have the Lion of Judah. Um, and the host of God goes out riding on great horses. But will Fido be with you? Not so sure. But does it matter? You're in the presence of God. You, are you so attached to your cat or your dog that heaven will be incomplete without them? I'll leave that one with you. That, and then not only is it a place of familiar natural features, there's the holy city of God. And there's this amazing description of the new Jerusalem dressed beautifully as the bride. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. You won't, sorry Paintonites, you won't have a seaside. You'll probably have large lakes. There's a reason for that, but I haven't got to go in time to go in. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Amen. The next bit, I'm always a little bit cautious about saying. For five years, friends, I've actually studied, more than five years now, something called near-death experiences. And I don't mean what happens when your 16-year-old granddaughter offers to take you for a drive in your own car the day after she's passed her test. I'm talking about these extraordinary experiences that people have in hospital and out of it when actually they are clinically dead, their heart has stopped. That, that amazing window of time between cessation and irreversible death. If you can get in and revive them, they'll come back again. And they go to the abyss and they come back. You know, there are three and a half thousand well-attested cases in the medical literature now. I'd love to have time to tell you about them, but I don't. But the point is they come back with amazing stories. And I'll just put it this way. Nothing that I have told you this morning is contradicted by what they say. Most of these people aren't Christians. They don't read the Bible, and if they did, the very last place they go to would be the book of Revelation because it's so difficult. But they come back and they tell us about a city of light. They tell us about an amazing light, but there's no sun. They tell us about the presence of Jesus and angels and Moses and Elijah. They tell us about meeting dear ones that they've loved. It's, it's an amaz- but the most amazing thing of all is they talk about the feeling of total acceptance and total love, unconditional love. And it's life-transforming because doctors now, we've been studying this for so long, there's about nearly 30 years of follow-up. And you can see that people who have these experiences and go to heaven or think they've gone to heaven are actually life transformed it's a fascinating topic in its own now it's not proof of heaven it's human experience but i just want to underline that the human experience is entirely in accord with those glimpses of heaven and they never say anything that contradicts it isn't that amazing isn't that amazing what is god doing i don't know third and last what's heaven for is it just a nice place for Christians to go when they die? Of course not. From our point of view, let's look at it from our point of view. It's a life-giving, life-transforming hope 
to live by. And that word hope in Greek doesn't just mean perhaps maybe, it means a sure and certain promise. It was given by John to the church at a time of dreadful persecution by the emperor Domitian. There was a practical purpose in what Revelation teaches us about heaven. It was to strengthen God's people in the face of terrible adversity. And it jolly well worked. It strengthened them then and throughout history. The thought of heaven has brought comfort and strength and guts to Christians dying in the most terrible circumstances. Persecuted like like the Quakers in 17th century England. Persecuted like, like the slaves who were taken to the plantations and they found their comfort in the spirituals. The Negro spirituals are rich in pictures of heaven. It brought comfort and strength and continues to the persecuted church worldwide. But what about God's point of view? Heaven, you see, is God's master plan. It's his master plan for creation. The history of mankind starts in a garden. It's a perfect garden. It has a perfect couple, perfect habitat, perfect everything, perfect work, and a perfect relationship with God. And it all gets ruined because sin sin comes into the garden. And with sin you get death, And you get separation from God. And that's the tragedy of mankind. God didn't intend that. He didn't want it. But throughout countless years, we've had sin and death and separation and a curse upon the land and a curse upon you and me, the people. But hallelujah! God prepared heaven for the start from us. Just as he prepared hell for Satan and his demons. He never meant hell for us. And in this new heaven, everything, as I've tried to bring you, is put right and restored. Just think. Our bodies restored. Our minds restored. Our separation from God completely reversed and reunited. This, this wonderful world that we live in that is sick and groaning, as Paul says, is restored Paradise lost, paradise regained. That's the point of heaven. It's the culmination, it's the fruition, it's, it's, it's the achievement of the perfect design that God laid down from the beginning. And then I read you the final amazing act. Now, I don't understand it, but somehow both heaven and earth are renewed. The old earth is burned up. The Apostle Peter tells us it, it just it vanishes and there's a new earth. And then we get and now the dwelling of God is with men because the city comes down and in some amazing way that holy city which represents the new heaven comes down and is the earth is merged with it and all become as one and God himself be with them And he will be their God, Emmanuel, God with us, is finally realized. So friends, what's there to be afraid of? What's there to not love? 
What is there not to look forward and get excited about for heaven? Especially when you think that Jesus died. The cross opened the way for us to go to heaven. Especially when we think of the alternative, but let's not, because we're Christians here. But I will put a question to you as I close. You know, it's the acid test. And it's simply this. It's not, do we just believe in heaven? But do we prize heaven enough? Is heaven in our minds and on our lips and in our conversation, in church family, and around our tables, and our prayers at home? Does it matter that amount to us to change the way we behave? Our priorities, our choices. It's not just what you believe that matters. It's how much it matters to you. And I'm not sure heaven matters enough to me. Quite honestly. I need to know it and love it and study it and think more about what Jesus sacrificed to get us there. I want Jesus and I want heaven to be on my lips and in my heart the whole time. Bow your head with me in prayer. please. Father God, we just thank you. We have a creator God who loved us so much that he knew from the beginning what was going to happen. And that you laid down from time immemorial, not just the Garden of Eden, but the new Jerusalem. Lord, there's nothing more beautiful for us to know that our future is in the hands of one who's got it all charted out. Nothing left to chance never to be surprised Lord we pray make our expectation of the heaven that you've prepared of that place that Jesus has already gone ahead for us individually make that expectation not just an abstract idea pie in the sky when you die but a living hope as transforming, as amazing, and more so than the wonderful stories of those who believe they've been there and come back and tell us. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. Mind cannot conceive what you, beloved Father, have prepared in advance for those of us here who love you. And we thank you. Help us to live, to speak constantly of, and to teach others the reality of heaven's alive.